7. Um, some of you probably know we're in the process right now of moving. Um, if you've never moved, it is, um, it is interesting. It's a process for sure. Um, and, and part of that is uh, us finding stuff. We've been in a house, the same house for 21 years. And so um, there are things that I haven't seen for 21 years. And then you have to determine, like, what are you going to do with that, that, that stuff? And so, um, and, and then, of course, there's family dynamics with all of that. So, like, for instance, my very favorite bocce set, you know, the, the wooden balls, the lawn bowling balls, um, my very favorite set, my wife that God gave me, who I love dearly, determined that I didn't need that anymore because all of the paint had worn off and they were just wooden balls that didn't have color on them. But I knew what they were. That was very, those were meaningful to me. But don't worry, the counseling's working. We're doing okay. Everything's fine. Um, so we're finding stuff. So uh, along the way, I, I found this. Now I know this looks really exciting to you. This, it, it's fine bone china, it says on the back. Limited edition, this is 1277 of 5,000. So I'm sure this is high end stuff. Totally forgot that I even had this. But once I found it, I was like, ooh, I need to keep that. This is the, this is the situation that my wife is in, poor woman. Um, the reason is, this was given to me by the cast and crew of a show called All My Sons that I had the opportunity to direct my senior year of college. If you're not familiar with that show, it's an Arthur Miller play. It's very heavy, very sad. Um, it's not the kind of thing that happy high school or college students would typically do, but we did it anyway. Um, and the way theater works, if, you, if you've never done theater, um, you, you tear this, this is two, two hour plus show, you tear it into little scenes and little character interactions. And as you journey through, it's always in these little segments. You very rarely see the thing all put together. So it was about a week before the show was about to go up. And I thought, man, we've never seen this thing all the way through. Like, we don't know what scene comes after what. We should probably practice. We should probably do that. And so we called everybody in, cast and crew and everybody, and we ran through the play beginning to end. And I said, I'm not going to stop you. I'm just going to take notes. And so that way we can get all the way through and everybody can see how everything flows. Now, I knew the play because I had read it dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. But I had never seen this group portray those characters in that way and so as the stage lights go up and the house lights go down, I, I pull out my pad, I get ready to take notes. And I take a couple notes at the beginning and then I, I just got captured by the story. Like I just was, uh, just, I was all the way in as this story unfolded. And by the time the show was over, rehearsal was over, I have tears running down my face and I took like four notes. Like I totally failed as a director, it was terrible. Because I had never seen the entire thing unfold like that, and it just captured me. Seeing things in bits and pieces is not the same as seeing the whole. And I think in the church, we often make that mistake with the crucifixion. We see Jesus' sacrifice in bits and pieces, but we fail to see the whole. And, and and don't get me wrong, understanding the details of the crucifixion is vitally important. It is the most important event in human history. If you're going to understand the details of anything, the crucifixion is the thing to understand. But sometimes it's important for us to stand back and allow the story to unfold and just immerse ourselves in it. So as I was studying this week, I found myself just like that 
first time I saw all my sons all the way through with, with a notebook and a pen. And I, I want to dig into the details, but I just kept being captured by the whole. And so I, I want us to see the story this morning, to really rest in the story, to face the cross for all of its horror, because it is horrible, so that we would understand the depth of the love that is offered to us. So we're going to look at the story. We're going to dig into the story. We're going to read through it two different times and just allow ourselves to be immersed in it. And then we're going to look at what's behind that story, what I'm simply calling the culprit. What's, what's at the root of it? And, and what does that mean for us? And so um, we are going to start, uh, the passage we're looking at today starts in verse 27 and runs through verse 44, but I'm going to start in verse 20. And, and I want to encourage you to listen however you best listen. And so if that's closing your eyes and imagining, close your eyes and imagine. If that's watching me as I read, watch me as I read. If that's reading along so that you can see the words as I'm reading the words, do that. But however you best listen, try to put yourself in the middle of this story and imagine all that's unfolding. Starting in verse 20. <clears throat> now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. <laughs> Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. One of the fascinating elements of the crucifixion story in all four Gospels is that the Gospel writers spare us the gory, gruesome details. It could be because everybody knew what crucifixion was about. We historically understand it, but those who were reading these documents had seen it firsthand. They understood the brutality, the physical pain, and the suffering. And so it didn't need to be recorded. Or it could be because the physical suffering and torture and pain wasn't even the primary point. Fleming Rutledge in her book, Crucifixion, says this, if Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. Jesus, as he went to the cross, imagine, God become human is dehumanized by the humans that he created. The heart of Jesus going to the cross was humiliation, degradation. Physical pain was just a small part of the whole. So I want to read through again this story and give you some comments along the way to kind of round the picture in. And I want us to immerse ourselves in all that's happening. Matthew tells us that Jesus was first scourged. He mentions it as a phrase within a sentence, but that scourging would have been an awful part of the process. Crucifixion victims were almost always scourged beforehand and there's record of several of them not having even made it to the cross because the scourging itself killed them. We represent it through the whip that is on the cross and those beads at the end represent what would have been rock and glass and bone that were intended to tear at flesh and expose bones and muscle and entrails. When Jesus was scourged, he lost strength and blood. And by the time this section of the narrative begins, Jesus is barely able to walk. 
And so the soldiers of the governor take Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gather the whole battalion. As a Roman soldier, being stationed in Palestine was the very worst place to be. It's right on the front. It's, it's right where uprisings and rebellions are happening all the time. And so as a Roman soldier, you were always on edge. You were always waiting for uh, somebody to, to sneak behind you with a knife, to, for, some, for a, an uprising to happen down the street. When you got up in the morning to the time you went to bed at night, you were on edge and you slept with one eye open. And so when there was someone like Jesus who was condemned to death, it was an opportunity for the Roman battalion to let off some steam. In this hyper-stressed environment, Jesus, like all crucifixion victims, were a release, he was a release valve. The fact that Jesus was tortured prior to crucifixion was not unique to him. The form of torture was unique. They strip him naked, Jesus' last dignity taken from him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed on his, in his right hand. The thorns recall back in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the world the curse that God pronounced on the earth was that it would no longer simply bear fruit, but it would bear thorns. And now these thorns, taken from the ground because of sin, are woven together and placed on Jesus' head. The reed in his hand fill out Jesus as a mock king. And so the battalion of Roman soldiers kneel before him and mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The joke, of course, for them was that Hail was the appropriate, uh, the, the appropriate word for Caesar, the powerful, mighty ruler of the Roman Empire, the most powerful nation the world had ever seen. And so to speak Hail before this King of the Jews was a mockery. He's there dripping in blood, preparing to die, and they speak, Hail, King of the Jews, and then take the reed. It was part of the way that they were mocking him as king, and they use it now as another element of torture. They spit on him. They took the reed, and they struck him in the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. The original hearers of Matthew's gospel would have likely listened to it all the way through, beginning to end. And they would likely remember, as Simon is being compelled to carry the cross, that Jesus' very first teaching actually referenced this practice. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if a Roman soldier compels you to carry his burden, don't just carry it one mile, but carry it two. The practice was that all Roman soldiers had the right to call any non-Roman citizen to carry their burden for them. Jesus is unable to carry his cross because of the scourging, because he's so weak. And the soldiers aren't going to carry it. So Simon is brought into duty. 
Whether he heard Jesus teach or not, he didn't have to carry it a second mile because Golgotha was right outside the city. Simon carries his cross to this place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. This was likely a medicated wine that was part of the process of crucifixion. This wine would numb the crucifixion victim so that they would scream and squirm a little bit less as they were affixed to the cross. Jesus refuses it because he wants to have all of his faculties with him as he goes as our sacrifice. And he had told his disciples, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I come into my kingdom. And so Jesus keeps his promise. And for Matthew, it's a simple phrase beginning the sentence, and when they had crucified him. He doesn't give us the details, but all of the original readers would have understood what that meant. The crossbar is laid down, Jesus is stretched out, and the nails, even though popularly we see them in his hands, would have been driven through his wrists because the flesh of the hand wouldn't have been strong enough to hold the weight of a man. And so the nails driven through the wrists would have been driven through the two bones in his forearms so that he could hang on them. And then as the crossbar is affixed to the vertical bar, his legs would have been crossed and a nail would have been driven through his ankle bones. His feet placed on a small platform so that as he hung and couldn't breathe, in order to get a breath, he would have to stand on the platform, shooting pain up through his body through the broken ankle bones. It's fascinating to think that every word that Jesus spoke from the cross, seven of them in total, were the result of Jesus pushing himself up on his broken, splintered ankles in order to give enough breath to speak. Matthew simply says, when they crucified him. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. This is all that Jesus has left. We picture often Jesus crucified in his undergarments, and he may have been, but it's much more likely that he was completely stripped naked, all dignity removed. And as they gamble for what he has, they're literally taking the only possessions he has his clothes that were left on him. Over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's fascinating that this is the truest thing spoken during this entire scene. The other gospel writers tell us that the Jewish leaders wanted a clarification put on the sign. He claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Two robbers are crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Just a few chapters ago, James and John are positioning themselves because they want to be on his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus, in a way that we only fully understand when we get here, says, you don't know what you're asking. It's not his disciples on his right and his left. It's two robbers 
crucified beside him as he comes into his kingdom. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Crucifixion happened at major thoroughfares, so the people would be walking by and seeing what's going on. And obviously there were some that knew Jesus' story, knew Jesus' background, and so they mock him. If you are the Son of God, each mocking from here on out will question his identity. Jesus hanging on the cross is hearing that over and over again. If you're the Son of God, you should be able to come down. If you're the Son of God, he should be saving you. Matthew then gets specific. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. This would have been together a group called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling authority, the religious authority of the day. They likely weren't all there, but they were represented there in each of the major categories, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they mocked him saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel, they mocked. So let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Can't imagine how cutting that phrase would have been to Jesus. He called himself the son of God. If his father really wants him, won't he take him? If his father really wants him, won't he be here with him? We see the heart of Jesus being alone in a phrase we'll look at next week from the cross as Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Completely alone. In fact, Matthew ends this section by saying, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Not even those crucified with him, condemned with him, were with him. He was completely alone, isolated. Probably a lot of you have a story that's similar to mine. Uh, when I was in third grade, I was riding the bus, like all third graders do, back and forth from school. And uh, there was a kid down the street from me named Aaron Anderson. Not the Aaron Anderson that is the headmaster at Logos. He's a wonderful, godly man. This was a little devil child. Um, uh, and Aaron Anderson um, was in my neighborhood. I didn't really know him that well, but like all the boys in the neighborhood, we played football, you know, because you just did that. And so we played backyard football together. Otherwise, I didn't really know him. And there I was on the bus minding my own business. And before there was a, a cultural crackdown on things like this, Aaron Anderson stood up on the bus and yelled out to everybody, Brian's a nerd! Now, in fairness, in a couple years I was arguing to wear a tie to school and carry a briefcase, so he might have been right. But I didn't know at the time. I just felt like I was like everybody else. Like I was just a kid. And he yelled out, Brian's a nerd. And other people began to yell, yeah, Brian's a nerd. And I had friends on that bus. Aaron was just a guy, but I had friends there. But they didn't stand with me because they, they couldn't. They couldn't stand against him. 
because the bully rose up above everybody else. And I remember feeling so completely alone. And I remember for weeks, this scene is on repeat. Sometimes in the morning, usually on the way home, Brian's a nerd. I hated going to school. I didn't want to be on the bus. I kept thinking, like, maybe if I wore, like, different clothes or if I had, like, cooler shoes or maybe I should, like, throw one of these tests so I don't do so well or something. Like, what, what can I do to not be a nerd? And probably there was a kid sitting right beside me and probably there were a couple in front and a couple behind, but I felt like I was 10 feet away from everybody. Sooner or later it stopped. I don't remember why. I don't remember how. And sooner or later, probably much later, I wasn't afraid to go to school anymore. And probably all of you have stories like that. Or maybe you were the kid that was yelling. I don't know. We know what it feels like to be isolated. We know what it feels like to be ostracized. We know what it feels like to be mocked. Some of you in this past year have felt that kind of aloneness. Jesus was alone. He was pushed out from everyone and everything that he knew. And as he went to the cross, he went to the cross alone, mocked, isolated, ostracized. Last week we asked the question, who killed Jesus? And we said that Matthew has laid out a narrative for us that has invited us to see all kinds of people who killed Jesus. The disciples and the, the ruling religious authorities, the crowd, Pilate, now the Roman soldiers. We see all kinds of people and we said that all of them had a part just like all of us have a part. We are all complicit. We all killed Jesus. And up until the middle of chapter 27, that's how it feels. Even as the Roman soldiers are, are introduced into the scene, it feels like they're just another category of people who are complicit in killing Jesus. But somewhere in the middle, for me, it shifts. I don't know about for you. It goes from the, the evil crowd and the evil religious authorities, and the unfaithful disciples, the all too faithful Roman soldiers. And it shifts. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like bad people anymore. It seems inhuman. This mocking goes to a level that seems like even really evil people aren't capable of this. As you read through, it feels like sin personified. Evil come to life is actively opposed to Jesus. I think one of the challenges that we have this side of the cross is that most of us don't take sin seriously enough. We don't see evil for what it is. And, and I, don't, I don't just mean uh, the way that we act, but I mean even theologically. Uh, when I was Preparing for ordination, one of the ordination questions that all ordinands have to answer is, what's the nature of sin? And I was taught the nature of sin is missing the mark. It's derived from an archery term. And that's true linguistically. 
And missing the mark is certainly one way to describe sin. I'm not here to say that that's not correct. Simply saying that I think the view that we should have of sin is much bigger and more robust. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, describes sin. Let me just read for you, uh, starting in verse 11. Paul says this, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. If I was going to paraphrase verse 11, Paul seems to say, sin walks into the room, grabs a hold of the law as a bludgeon, and beats me to death with it. That sounds like way worse than missing the mark. Like missing the mark feels like I hit the blue ring instead of the red bullseye. This is dangerous, powerful, something that I should take very seriously. The story of the cross is calling us to take sin as seriously as God does. Fleming Rutledge again makes this statement. Jesus' situation under the harsh judgment of Rome was analogous to our situation under sin. Now think about this. He was condemned. He was rendered helpless and powerless. He was stripped of his humanity. He was reduced to the status of a beast, declared unfit to live and deserving of a death proper to slaves. Now think about us. When we enter into sin, condemned, rendered helpless and powerless, stripped of our humanity, reduced to the status of a beast, declared unfit to live and deserving of a death proper to slaves. Rutledge goes on to say this, this is what happened on the cross. The Son of God gave himself up to be enslaved by sin, condemned by the law, and subject to death. Matthew lays this out for us so that you and I would take sin as seriously as God does. To recognize that sin is not just an accidental missing of the mark, an arrow that went a little right or a little left, but sin is powerfully opposed to God. And sin is actively attacking Jesus on the cross. The horror of the cross is not just the physical torture and pain, which was significant. The horror of the cross is not even just the mockery and the isolation, which is awful. But the horror of the cross is sin fully released on the second Adam, the representation of humanity. Sin running its course in the death of Jesus. It's supposed to be heavy when we look into the cross. And it's supposed to remind us that sin is not something to mess with, but something that we must turn and run from. 
So when you see this interaction between sin and the law and death, it all seems like bad news, right? But Paul, unbelievably, if you just go a few verses down, he kind of uh, meditates through this interaction between sin and the law and the death. And then he makes this statement at the beginning of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How's that work? What Paul's saying here is that when we meditate on the heart of the cross and we see the work of sin taking the law and using it as a bludgeon bringing death, that is the way that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us. That as horrible as this is, as horrific as the scene is unfolding, it's also an invitation an invitation to allow the sacrifice of Jesus to be our sacrifice. In another letter to the Corinthian church this time, Paul's going to make this statement, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, One has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says this, that there's an exchange that happens on the cross as we look fully in the face of the horror of the cross. Where one has died for all of us so that we don't have to that we would be given life. Just a few verses later at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes something that's easy to memorize but really hard to understand. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. I've had that memorized for 20 years. I still don't fully get it. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, the second Adam in his perfection, to become sin for us. As Jesus is taken to the cross and the horror unfolds, it's because he has become sin and therefore is fully worthy of the judgment of God so that we might become the righteousness of God. The invitation is for us to not simply step away from sin, but to turn into the righteousness that he's invited us into. We don't simply avoid bad behavior. Our call is not just to repent of the sins of omission or commission, or, or the fact that we see God wrong, or the fact that we see people wrong. We don't, we don't love people as created by God in the image of God. All of those things are bad. They, they are part of the evil that's endemic in us. But we're equally invited to turn into the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that we cannot create on our own. When we turn to the cross, we receive something that we can't generate no matter how hard we work. Which means when we look in the face of the cross, 
and we confess and we repent, our response should always be worship, always be thankfulness, because there's nothing else we can do. When we get the weight of what happened on the cross, the, the immediate response that we should have is, I can't do anything to earn that. I can never pay that back. That's so much bigger than me. And Matthew wants us to hear that and says, yes, you're right. And so let's be people who are thankful. Matthew's calling us to do two things. To repent from our sin and turn towards righteousness. And to be people of worship and thankfulness who, looking squarely in the face of the cross, recognize the incredible love that God has for us as his people. And so I want to invite you to do that, to turn, to repent, to turn from sin and move towards righteousness, and to worship, to be thankful. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a response. And as they do, I'm going to ask if there's just a, a handful of you, uh, one or two, on each side that would be willing to just move toward the front to be willing to pray with any who desire to be prayed with. If you're here and you're just saying, man, God's speaking to me in this and I just, I need to, I, I need to respond. We would love to be able to pray with you. So we would invite you to come. And we would invite all of us to worship to be thankful for what Jesus has given for us. We look squarely in the face of the horror of the cross in order to understand the height and breadth and length and width of the love of God for us. So I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite those who are willing to pray, intercessors and elders, to move toward the front. And then we'll worship together. Jesus, I thank you for your love for us. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's, it's broader than we can get our arms around. But we're thankful because we know that what you did for us is something that we could never do for ourselves. And so we simply open our hands and receive. Thank you that no matter how bad we are and no matter how uh, unworthy we feel, the cross says you have paid more than that. And so we're invited. And so Jesus, we turn our hearts to you. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. We receive it as unworthy vessels, but thankful people. <laughs>